You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the programme tonight, Ron Forrestal is going to join me in the studio shortly to talk about Italian wines. I'm out and about and meet John Doyle to talk about the Bank of Ireland food series events that are being run in Limerick. And I also meet Travis Gleeson to talk about his book, Chef Interrupted. A reminder about how you can get in touch with me here at Best Possible Taste. I'd be delighted to hear from you. If you're a chef, home cook, food producer, I'm always interested in hearing your story. So do please drop me a line to s.noonan at live.ie or alternatively, I'm on Twitter with my nickname, Queen of Organisation, and you'll find me there at Queen of Org. So tonight we're going to hear first from Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants to talk about Italian wine. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio tonight. Thanks, Sharon. Tonight we're going to talk about Italian wines, but before that I have a question for you that somebody asked me to ask you. Okay. And it's about red and white wine and the difference between the two of them insofar as you recommend that red wine is given time to breathe. Yes. But white wine, you don't need to do that with. No, and only certain reds too. Um, you'll find that anything you need to drink pretty young um, won't need that breathing space that the older, more complex kind of reds need. And really what I'd say is a kind of rule of thumb. Um, if you're buying anything in a, in a shop, supermarket, generally anything over about 12 euros, you're getting to the more quality end of the wine, red wines in particular. And really you're looking at wines from Spain, some from Italy, um, French particularly, uh, and some good Australians that need time to breathe. And they tend to be the better ones, the more expensive, and they generally be about the four to five years old at least before there'd be an issue. Um, uh, Spanish wines seem to be the ones that that uh, take most advantage of breathing. Um, Pili Riocas, the older ones, maybe reservas that are 2008, 9, 10 now, if they get an hour, an hour and a half, uh, with the bottle open before they um, before they're drank, it makes all the difference to them. Um, of course, you can speed up that process by decanting the bottle, which literally means you get decanter, those fancy decanters that you have in your sitting room that you never take out, they actually have a purpose. Uh, this is what they're for. They fill a bottle of wine or a little bit over a bottle of wine. They're the wide base decanters with the nice, nice top. And the idea is that you pour the bottle of wine into that decanter, you're supposed to do it over a candle, as it turns out, looking at the wine through it, so that when you see a little bit of sediment at the bottom, a lot of these wines, older wines, will have a little bit of sediment. And when they have a little bit of sediment at the bottom, you stop pouring, so you end up losing maybe a half an inch in the bottom of the bottle. Um, and what happens with that wine when it's poured out into a decanter, it speeds up that breathing process, um, which means if you want to leave it for two or three hours, you can speed the whole process up by decanting it and do it. In the better restaurants, you'll find they'll offer that service for you. It kind of also can add a bit of sense of occasion to an evening, can't it, if you do well, that? absolutely. Now, in restaurants, what they, uh, in, in better, when I mean better restaurants, I mean restaurants now that have the time that are serving wine that, that needs it, first of all, and that is of that kind of value, and that they have the time to do it. And the staff who can do it is the other, is the other uh, issue for them. But yeah, the decanter is left, the bottle is left beside it because it's always, you need to know what's actually in the decanter. Um, it would never leave your sight from the time it would be open to when it would be decanted at the table. And it's lovely, but at home it's lovely too. Now, a lot of people don't decant it because um, 
they may not know how to do it they may be afraid they'll lose wine doing it uh, like if I was decanting a good bottle of wine at home now I'd get a bit of muslin cloth put it into a funnel put it into a decanter and pour the bottle nice and slowly through that so you get all the wine and you just miss you lose the sediment at the bottom that's all you're trying to get rid of you don't lose that half an inch then. exactly yeah, yeah. But it's something very nice you shouldn't have to there's nothing wrong with sediment at all it's just it happens to be a little bit rough when you taste it and all sediment is is is, is pieces of of juice that have congealed nothing no issue at all it's nothing got to do with the bottle nothing it doesn't affect it it doesn't taste fantastic but it's just better not have it in the glass when you have it the um the other people rest some restaurants do when they decant it they they wash out the bottle and put the wine back into the bottle again so that you know exactly what you're drinking um particularly for a bigger party you know where you'd have a group of 30 or 40 people you don't want to have that many decanters lying all over the table so they decant the bottle dry it out uh, put it back into the bottle again so you'd know exactly what you're drinking. So red wine then, like it improves kind of with time up to a certain point whereas white wine tends to deteriorate. Uh, some white wines actually, if you do, just uh, for uh, to, to show you how this thing actually means, get a bottle of wine next Saturday night when you open a bottle of red and maybe you're having a glass of wine on a Saturday night at home or whatever it is, just open it a couple of hours before it, you'd, you'd be thinking about drinking it um, take a taste of it uh, leave it there for the hour, two hours, whatever it may be, and then go back to it again and, and see what changes in it. Um, some of the, you know, the lower end of the wines won't change a great deal. If anything, it'll probably disimprove slightly. It'll lose a bit of its uh, bit of its pungency by being left out in the air. But the better ones will develop them more. Now, if you do that with white wine, it can improve sometimes, maybe. A lot of the time it can lose a bit of its bite, maybe, by being open for a little while. Uh, but really, a couple hours is the most you'd have anything open and white, really, before you drink it. Really, that's as much as you anything after that, and it starts to lose. You're talking there about the price points, and Ray Darcy was actually talking about an article that he'd come across. Some wine writer had written about, you know, if you buy the the bottle of wine at a fiver, there's mm. fifty p's worth. It was a pound sterling. There's fifty p's worth of wine in that. If you mm. go up to a tenner. It's maybe a bit more than a pound. Yeah. You really need to go to the 15, 20. And that's something that you've often said here to us. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's just the, the, the tax duty and uh, in this country. What, basically, out of your, you look at your bottle of wine in the supermarket now at the weekend when you're buying one, and your €8 a bottle of wine, um, between the, the government tax, that is going to whip away at least €6 Euros of that. So that leaves €2 Euros for everybody else involved in that now, which includes the guy who made the, produced the bottle of wine, guy who did the label, guy who did the bottle, person who shipped it over here, person who delivered it over here. All the, There could be another six layers of people involved in that by the time it gets to that shelf, and they're dividing the two euros between them. So that gives you an idea of what goes into the bottle now. That half inch at the bottom yeah. is everything then, yeah. isn't it? Well, the difference is that if you're willing, and I say this all the time, a euro makes such a difference um, in the quality of a product. So if you're buying a bottle of wine for eight or nine euros, then it's a certain product you're buying. If you can spend 10 euros, you've jumped up significantly. So that, go back to your analysis of, of that price thing. So you've gone from 50 cent out of that fiber bottle of wine. If you jump to six euros, it might be a 75 cent wine. You jump to eight euros, it might be a euro 10 or a euro 20. You jump to 12 euros, it could be 250 
that actually worth of wine that actually went into that. And you can see the difference. Like the difference that would mean in a winery is phenomenal. That means something that's really budget where they don't care a great deal about what goes into it. Just something that is a genuine product that they're very happy to sell. Does that mean that if you're buying a, a bottle from Italy that we're going to talk about tonight or California, mm. given I'm assuming that the transport costs from California to Ireland are going to be higher than Italy to Ireland just because mm. of the distance. So does that mean the bottle that you buy from California that's a tenor and the bottle that you buy from Italy that's a tenor that you're getting a better quality wine in the Italian bottle? Well, it's uh, better quality is a kind of, um, you know, that's that's a, a loaded term, really, depending on where it's coming from and, and who's selling it. Um, the I suppose Italy and and California probably aren't the, the, the two best to compare, but compare Chile and Italy, uh, where Chile, you know, add another thousand miles to the shipping of it from uh, the, the wine from Italy comes um, overland to France shipped from France to Ireland. It's a very straightforward process. Um, if, if we were to order wine um, today from Italy, it would be picked up next Monday or Tuesday. It would arrive in Ireland the following Friday, as in four days turnaround. Uh, I order wine from Chile. It takes 12 weeks. That's it. There's nothing to. There's no other way that that's going to happen anything quicker than that. But the advantage that Chile has is that it's the the standard wage they pay for workers in a vineyard in, in Italy is probably no, not much away from what we'd look at an average industrial wage or maybe a bit lower. They don't have an influx of foreign workers who come in and do this. They're very stringent about what they do in their own employment law. But in Chile, there's most of the work is done by the Colombians, um, Bolivia, that come down, they pick fruit in fruit season, they pick grapes in grape season. And uh, I've, I've been in Chile a, a couple of times and it's been, it's ferocious work. It's done in very high heat. It's very manual because it's cheaper than machinery uh, for these workers. Uh, it's very tough. And these are certain kind of products that tend to be very budget, tend to be very supermarket, very offered at half price kind of products, which means that the, the costs have been cut down so low that um, you have a lot of the big, big wineries, big branded wineries, that use this kind of labor that is very cheap. Uh, they're, they're making wine just to produce wine because they have to. They have to produce wine at a certain price, and that's it. I remember being in South Africa, is another country as well, that can produce wine very cheaply. But I remember being in, in South Africa um, a few years ago, and we were the only Irish people out during the day because it was so hot, except all the people working in the vineyard who were all out working. But there was no vineyard... Um, marketing people, nobody in any kind of management would stick their head out because it's just too hot from 1 to 4 p.m. But that didn't stop all the people who had to work there and the Irish people who just couldn't figure out that it was too hot to go outside. <laughs> but that's, that's what you're up against. Whereas Italy tend to that. Australia cannot do that. Um, uh, California in particular, very high costs of producing wine. But then again, they only produce products. Then if you're going to do that, you're only going to produce a product of a certain level. You're not going to try and fight it out at the bottom you're going to produce a quality product generally. Well, you have five quality products from Italy for us tonight. What are we going to start with now? Yes, well, Italy is a, is a huge producer of wine. Like, the biggest producer of wine in the world is Italy. Um, and they have such diversity. It, it's, it's amazing. From the north to the south, you have... Like, if you look at the wine region map of Italy, virtually the whole country is covered. One way or another, there's grapes growing somewhere. Uh, they mightn't be as, uh, as prominent as others. Some of the areas are smaller... But they produce wine in virtually every part of the country, right down to the very bottom, right down to the heel. 
Um, whereas in France, you can pick it out. When you look at a map of the wine region in France, you pick out the, the north west and then down south is very strong. Take a line across the middle of the country and down there. But there's such diversity and such products that we drink an awful lot of in Ireland. Pinot Grigio being the absolute number one. Um, now Pinot Grigio isn't, isn't um, unique to Italy. Um, it's, it's a Pinot Gris grape variety. It's grown all over the world, but it grows particularly well in Italy. I'm surprised to hear that it's not associated only with Italy because I just would have automatically assumed that it was. Actually, the, the grape variety originates um, from France, from the Alsace of France, which is a Pinot Gris, which is the grape variety. Um, obviously, um, taken to Italy, it, it, it's, the grape variety is called Pinot Grigio. Huge production. I mean, absolutely massive production. The, if you think about the Pinot Grigio that's drank in this country alone, and we're so small in the, wine, in the world wine market, and you take the States, which is just phenomenal, a huge amount of Italian ethnic restaurants that would all have a number of Pinot Grigios on their list. Now, Pinot Grigio is, is an unusual product um, because... It's, it's not the most memorable product in the world when you taste it. It's, it's a fairly um, neutral, flavoured white wine. Hugely popular because it's very easy to drink. And it takes chilling very well. You can really chill it cold. And Irish people really like cold white wine. That's the, the key for anyone who's selling it in a restaurant or a pub. But taken to Pinot Grigio extremely well. We carry seven Pinot Grigios now because we do a lot of business with restaurants beside each other and... and and we just can't have the same products. So we end up getting a number of them for that reason. And what would the difference be between the seven of those in terms of taste and price and all of that? Like what makes one superior to another? Well, uh, generally it's a lot of the, a lot of the, the cheaper Pinot Grigios you see in the supermarkets in particular tend to be um, huge production products. They, you could basically, I could find you, I could get someone to produce a bottle of Pinot Grigio if you're willing to buy 10,000 bottles of it. I get it with your picture on it, no problem, and call it whatever you like, because if you can pay for it and you can get the product, uh, they'll do that. But then if you go to the more to the wineries themselves, the ones who produce their own Pinot Grigio, put their own label on it, and that's all we have. We don't have anything else. We don't go for any of the mass production Pinot Grigio, and uh, there's not a huge price difference between those products now. Just that there's if you're trying to sell stuff in the, in, in in retail really cheap, fifty cent makes a massive difference. Like that's the difference between you being at a certain price market and another. But yeah, we have seven of them. Three of them are from the same producer, three different versions actually of the same product because we need products to look differently to each other so that people can, different restaurants can sell them so they're not selling the same product all the time. And then we have a couple that move up a level. Uh, they're in cork, not screw caps. Uh, so is that like a jam maker making jam, their own brand jam, and then maybe making it for a supermarket chain and having their label on it and another supermarket chain and having their label on it? Well, yeah, it's, well, it's more like um, that if you, were, if you went to a jam maker and said, I want to produce a jam, a jam, and I have not the recipe, but I want, this is what I'm looking for in it. Uh, and they'd say, fine, yeah, absolutely, we'll produce it. And we have a label. We have three, four different labels, all part. So a lot of these wineries have started off with one, one estate, bought another one, bought another one, and got bigger and bigger. So they end up with three or four different stables, if you like, between. They own the whole lot of them. So you end up maybe they have three different names that they use, from, be it from different vineyards that they already own. And what we do is we pick off ones that they'd have already, but they have, at least they have a background. At least that was an estate at one stage. Um, it's all together now as part of a bigger one, but at least they had some origins in, in, 
in geographical terms that it was there and opposed to the big ones that you can just put anything you want on. And is Pinot Grigio then, it's one of your top sellers? Is absolutely. It? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just huge. Like we'd have restaurants where Pinot Grigio wouldn't be the house wine, you know, it wouldn't be the one that you'd get if you asked for a glass of wine, but it'd outsell whatever that was, no problem. Well, you do all also advise that you wouldn't necessarily go for the house wine, go for the next one up. You've said that before. Oh, absolutely. I think it's just just move up that couple of euros and it makes a massive difference. Um, a lot of them, not some people sell extremely good house wine um, and I sell a lot of it to them, as it turns out. But just if you're willing to spend that extra couple of euros more, um, plus you get something a little bit more different. A lot of house wine tends to be Chilean or tends to be... Uh, you know, south of France or that kind of thing, whereas you can move into more wines in the Loire in France or from Italy, you move into more Piedmont, into more unusual and more interesting kind of products. Now, moving on to red, is that a bottle of red there, the one it in is. the middle? So you have two bottles of red here for us, this um, Dog yes. Jalo, am I Dog Jalo? It's Dog Yeah, um, yeah it's it, a popular one, I've seen it before. It is, yeah, it's a very popular product. It's from Tuscany, um, uh, mid-Italy, um, Tuscany famous for Chianti, very recognisable. All the Chianti in the world comes from Tuscany. It geographically has to come from Tuscany. Uh, Dagajolo is a is a kind of a blend of uh, of uh, the grape that makes Chianti is called Sangiovese, uh, and in order to be called Chianti, it has to be a hundred percent that. It can't be anything else. Um, but Dagajolo wanted to blend it with Cabernet to make it more uh, more a bit more body to it and make it smoother and not as dry. So that's why they produced this. Uh, so they're called super Tuscans when they're not using 100% of one grape variety. So it's a smashing product. Uh, for anyone who has seen it before, uh, it's in quite a few restaurants. It's a very distinctive label, which is kind of memorable. People realise it for that. I yeah. was just going to comment on the label because it is a very memorable label. Mm. It's very eye-catching. It kind of does suggest quality and sophistication and the wax yes, stamp yeah. on it then as well gives yeah. it a very regal type feel. It is, and it's not overly expensive, um, but they really packaged it extremely well. Um, and it's a product that really goes well for us. It has a huge following in restaurants. And, you know, it doesn't jump off a menu when you see it because maybe not something you've, you've, you've heard before. But I have people who go back to restaurants and say, you know, that I'll have the one with like the leaves and the label, that one, because they remember that bit about it in the post of what it's called or anything else. So it um, yeah it sells extremely well. It's, it's like it's a fifteen euro bottle of wine. It's a special occasion kind of product. Now it's not one you're going to have you know at at the weekend or every weekend. But it's something really nice if you had something special come up. It's a beautiful product. Comes in half bottles as well. Come in, comes in magnums as well, double bottles, and comes in double magnums even up to five liters. So it's a it's a really nice product. And the middle one then this other red, a very unusual bottle for this. It is, yeah, and this is uh, becoming a little bit more common now in Italy because the Italians are very good at marketing. You know, they're very good on packaging and marketing. They like to make things look nice, look different, and stand out slightly. So they produced this bottle, which is which was used um, a couple of hundred years ago, was widely used as a standard bottle. It's a shorter, stubbier little bottle than the normal one. It's nearly like an olive oil or a yeah, balsamic exactly. vinegar type bottle. Yeah, and this is a Valpolicella, um, a Campagnola. Uh, you know, it's it's Valpolicella is a pretty dry red, but it's very delicate, ideally suited for pasta, even pizza, not too heavy at all, but a real nice, refined kind of red drink. Valpolicella is what's used, grape variety is what's used in Amarone, Rapasso, all the big reds use that um, Valpolicella. 
um, ones you'd recognize and the ones that become very expensive. Uh, this is a kind of a, again, it's around a 15 euro bottle of wine. Uh, it's called Le Bain from uh, Valpolicella Classico, uh, but it's a beautiful product. And the bottle is a little bit different when it makes it stand out a bit. What does that retail at? About 15 euros. Okay. Yeah, so it's not that expensive. A nice bottle to give to somebody yeah, for a present or a take to, to yeah. a house. Yeah, it is, as you say, it is very different and it, yeah. looks, very, it looks much more expensive than 15 euros. Well, you find that a lot with, with Italian wines where you can go to... Spain as well do it really well. You know when you move up the price mark in Spain, they do their packaging extremely well. You realise when you get a nice bottle of wine that this there's, there's value in this. You know, whereas France kind of don't don't do as much on that. Uh, we're dealing with a French company for years and uh, called uh, from the south of France called Colombet, and we've been arguing over the label for three or four years now that we didn't like the label and it wasn't as it could be it'd sell much more if the label was better and the wine is fantastic. It's just that the label is very poor. And every time they say it, the guy says, it's not about the label, it's about the wine. It's not it's about the, the label. French arrogance yeah. there, is it? <laughs> it is. It's a bit of that, Whereas if it? you go back to Italian and say the Pinot Grigio is nice, but the label wasn't ideal, they take everything on board. They're just, they want to sell wine. So they say, listen, we're looking at that label. We've had two or three people who have said that. So we're going to look at that label. And we're going to finish then on my favourite. Prosecco. Two different Proseccos. Yes, because Prosecco is just phenomenal. It's uh, Prosecco is a geographical area as well and it has to, for it to be called Prosecco it has to exist inside that but uh, we just uh, bought another range uh, in another range of, of uh, from S. San Osvaldo from the north of Italy again a couple of weeks ago and Gianni is the guy who's uh, the, the guy we're dealing with the agent and he says the Prosecco area is growing every year they're expanding it so he said it'll be fine there. Because there was that potential shortage there that everybody was getting very worried about, yeah, including myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah but that that that's came true. They came through that. Their their um, last year was good for them, so that should be okay again. Um, the market is 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 huge. It's huge in Ireland for them. They're they're amazed for the size of us. We're we're going through so much prosecco. It's amazing. Has it really grown in Ireland over the past few years? Oh, from a, from a base of zero ten years ago. But to about 15 years ago, zero for Prosecco. Prosecco was the, you know, you wouldn't even tell people what it was. You might get it at a wedding, but no one would ever say what you're actually having. It was the poor relative. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, there was that, and Cava had the same kind of problem, that uh, people passed it off as champagne, but never really said. Whereas now you'll have people who will say, it's a Prosecco reception. That's what it is. Um, yeah. And it's a funny thing, and champagne, you know, it was maybe it was a recession issue, and maybe it was a couple of other things. Champagne absolutely took a hammering just because the cost is so high like a, a good bottle of champagne even in your supermarket is 40 euros there's just no way of avoiding that um, whereas a good bottle of Prosecco like a real good bottle of Prosecco is 20 euros like a real upmarket one mm-hmm. and you can get them much cheaper than that but uh, the, the the difference for the problem for champagne is that people are not necessarily going to go back to champagne again one because they probably won't spend that kind of money again on anything but the taste is completely different uh, champagne and cava is much drier, um, which is the Spanish equivalent, is much drier, has a more biscuity kind of feel to it. Um, you won't drink an awful lot of it. Uh, a glass or two is about a stretch, really. It's had to be before a meal. It's never for someone to drink it. Whereas but Prosecco has become a drink in a bar, you know, where people sit down happily and have, you know, their, their few glasses of Prosecco. And it has a much sweeter feel to it. It's much easier to drink. 
um, yet it's nice and fresh. You know, it's it's full of bubble. It has everything going for it, and the packaging is fantastic and prosecco. You know, the bottles are really nice. And these two little, these are two little mini yes. bottles that you have tonight. Yeah, I just want to talk again. I know we've talked about this before, but there's two kinds of prosecco. So there's frizzante, uh, which has a a cork, like has a wine cork in it that you need an opener to pull out, or a screw cap. Um, you see an awful lot of screw cap now. That's frizzante. Has a lower kind of bubble. Has lower pressure in the bottle. Uh, tend to be much cheaper because the duty is half the price of what the other one is. Um, then you have the full pop-off champagne cork called Spumante. The bubble is much better than Spumante, but Spumante is much dearer. Okay. So there's a price difference there, and it's all duty is the price difference. And what do these retail at for the small bottles? The, the small ones, the screw cap costs around four fifty a bottle, and then the this one costs about six fifty. Yeah, ideal if you're, though I know they'd be dearer than that if you're in a bar or a pub, mm. but you know, there are some people who would prefer the Prosecco to the wine. Yes. But don't want to be ordering the full bottle. Ah, yes, yeah, like these small, you know, and they're, they're, they're not quarter bottles, they're uh, 200 ml, they're bigger than your normal quarter bottle would be in a pub. But you'll really get two champagne glasses out of them because champagne glasses tend to be pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just much better, like, and they're single serve, which means they're full of bubble. You're the person who's going to open them generally, um, or to the pop-up ones, the guy serving or the girl serving will do it for you. But the screw caps generally they're going to be opened the five seconds as you get them. They tend to be in a nice cold fridge because they're in the same places where the beers are kept to that, and they're nice and cold. And I think they're ideal, ideal for people who like that. Obviously, you wouldn't buy them at home really because you know you'd have the ability probably to use a bottle of prosecco at home if you used it, as opposed to the single serve. And what I have found with the Prosecco that I have got off you, that really it, it, is, it is as fizzy the next day, because unfortunately I haven't had anybody to assist <laughs> me, to help me drink it. And I've put like a cork, like yeah. a bottle top into it and it has been fine the next day. Yeah, it's, it's all about not letting air out of it. You know, that's the key really. And uh, the pop-off cork ones, you can get really nice closures for them, you know, that clip down on them and hold them airtight. And they'll hold it fine. Now, they won't be the same as what they were when you open them. They're never the same. Because even the initial pop lets out a huge amount of pressure out of the bottle for that. So you're not going to have the same amount of bubble. But they're perfectly fine. Now, the only issue is that if you go into a bar or, or a hotel and have them, you know, I, I've seen it where it's very difficult for hotels to do that, to pour bottles, because overnight they will deteriorate. Um, and it's ne- it's not quite the same the following day. And if you're spending, you know, 11, 12, 13 euros on a glass of quality Prosecco, it's very difficult for them. Some of them have have the uh, Verdeven systems that, that save them overnight, but even that loses pressure in the bottle and the Proseccos. Okay, well, we'll finish on that one, my favourite one. Thanks a million for coming in tonight to talk to us about that. And forestal.ie is your web address Absolutely. if people want to get in touch. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Just before the break, we were getting fine and thirsty, talking about Italian wines and finishing up with a little bit of Prosecco. Thanks to Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. And still to come tonight, I'll be talking to Travis Gleeson about his book, Chef Interrupted.
Don't forget, if you've missed any of the shows so far, it will be up in the podcast later in the week and you'll find it on my website, SharonNoonan.com or subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the podcast app. Next, though, I'm out and about at the Bank of Ireland Food Series where I spoke to John Doyle about what it was all about. You might remember that last week I was talking to Artie Clifford from the Blossom Aaron Awards and he was one of the speakers at the Bank of Ireland Food Series event and there's going to be lots more of those events coming up in April and May so be sure to keep an eye on their Twitter to find out more but let's have a listen to what John told me Bon appétit Yummy Grubs up Delicious Mmm John, you're running a series of food workshops in the Bank of Ireland workbench here in Limerick City. How did you come up with this idea? Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Yeah, it's an exciting new concept. Um, I suppose it, it, it came from a passion of looking after food producers myself. I've worked in the banking sector for the last 13 years. Recently moved to Bank of Ireland, uh, finance um, covering Clare, Limerick and Tip. So we'd working with a lot of food producers, particularly in Clare for the last number of years, um, I, I got a lot of good contacts in the sector and I felt Limerick probably needed a little bit more support and showcase and what great produce is on their doorstep, particularly in Limerick and Limerick County and also Clare and Tipperary. So I came up with a series along with um, Maria Walsh and uh, Roshan Crotty here based in Limerick with Bank of Ireland to run a series of six nights over 2017. Um, our first night obviously launching tonight uh, in Workbench here in Limerick City uh, and the team is the Impact and Food Awards can have in your business. Well, our next night will be in, in April and May and then follow with break for the summer and then we'll follow on then in September, October, November. You yourself, you're familiar with the Blossnaren Irish Food Awards because you were a judge there last October. That's when we actually first met. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was a, it was a great honour, um, I suppose, last year to be invited to be a judge uh, for the Blossnaren, which is, is to me the standout food awards in Ireland. And it, it, it shows rec- what great recognition is there for Irish produce and particularly artisan produce, you know. So it was a great weekend. It it um it really opened my eyes to, to the sector, the I suppose the the vast array of products that's there and, and that are being developed and that have grown across the island of Ireland really. Um and obviously it was great to meet yourself down there as well on on, on the same weekend. Working with food companies, have you seen them reap the rewards and the benefits of winning an award like the Blossnaren Award? Oh, absolutely. Listen, food business, I have great admiration for anyone that goes into food business because it's a very tough business. It's long hours. And the biggest biggest thing I can see is it's it's very easy to get absorbed in working, I suppose, in the business and not working on the business. And what I mean by that is the marketing side, the PR side, and particularly with social media being so prominent now. So awards is hugely important because what it does is it does that for you. So if your your product is good enough and you spend enough of time working on it to get to the right taste, use the right ingredients. Um, after that, then it really is about getting the promotion out there. And if you're if you are a small producer, you don't have the budget to to be advertising weekly, nationally. So with food awards, it gives you that platform of if you win, if you come second or third, or even with the blasting hair. And I really like it. If you're a finalist, you still get that logo and you can put it on your branding. And that's what stands out on the shop shelf. Really, is is the recognition from the Irish Food Awards to Blasting Hair. What are the main challenges that you find food producers are facing at the moment? I think the main main challenges really are, 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 I suppose, having the right amount of cash flow from the start. You know, a lot of food producers come up with an idea, they test it to their friends and family, 
potentially maybe go to a farmer's market and, and at that stage then they feel that they, they might put away a bit of savings or maybe a bank loan or, or grant funding but it's really to have the right amount of cash flow and the right amount of investment at the start because there's no point investing in product development and packaging and then not being able to fulfil orders and, and have as because distribution in my opinion would be probably the hardest channel to crack in the food industry at the moment. Now you said tonight's theme is the impact that food awards have on your business and you have two more workshops coming up before the summer. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. So each each food series night will have a different theme and topic. Um, because I, I think that's hugely important because you mentioned food, you mentioned beverage. Um, it's it, There's so many products under each category. So the next night is uh, the 26th of April. It's a Wednesday night here in, in Workbench and it's 6.30 to half nine again. It's on craft beer and distilleries, which is another huge growth sector in Ireland. Um, we have some local local craft breweries. We have White Gypsy from Tipperary. Um, we have Western Herd from Clare. We have a whiskey distillery, a Tipperary boutique distillery. Um, and we also then have the Boyle sisters, Susan and Judith from Kildare, so far. We'll have, we'll have more to add to that one. So that's the craft, craft beer and distillery night. Then in May, then we have a restaurant team night, um, which we have Gillian Nealis from the Sunday Business Post is going to be our host that night and, and, and restaurant critic. We also have Gary Ann Hanland from Viewmount House in Longford and, uh, and obviously off the telly from the restaurant programme. And we have a couple of local chefs then and we have a case study on a, a local Limerick restaurant, Azure, who've been through recent investment and makeover in the restaurant. And it's really important to see how what changes they've found from investing in the restaurant, changing it, do their existing client base like it, don't they like it, have they attracted new, all those things. So we feel that the series will cover a vast amount of topics and really the series is about education, it's about promotion, it's about supporting local food businesses and more importantly it's about networking as well. So. You mentioned Gary O'Hanlon there from the restaurant and from Viewmont House up in Longford. And of course, we have to say that Maria Walsh, who is a former Rose of Tralee and is on the restaurant this year on the latest series, she has uh, a role to play here in the workbench in Bank of Ireland. Absolutely, yeah. I'm delighted to, to be working here with Maria on this food series. But Maria's role is she's the workbench community manager here in Limerick. So Maria's responsibility is really, really coordinating events that happen here, coordinating day-to-day running of, of Workbench, which is a fantastic workspace in Limerick. It's a, it's a free space for all businesses, regardless of where they bank, what business they're in, and they can come and use the space. It's free Wi-Fi, free coffee, there's hotspot desks to plug in, plug in for your PC, and also we have, a, we have an interview room here, a boardroom here as well that's free as well. So, yeah, Maria's role is in that, and she, she um, obviously from, from her Rosa Tralee days and her media days, she, she's invited to take part in the restaurant on uh, on TV3 in the coming weeks so she tells me that uh, I won't be speaking to her after it but uh, I, I'm sure I'm sure she did, did, did is proud anyway so. Well we look forward to watching that and just to highlight that the food series events are free of charge and Absolutely. they're open to, to anybody anywhere in Ireland that wants to come along to them Absolutely yeah this, there are free events free events here in, um, in Workbench in Limerick they I suppose they're designed to just really I suppose celebrate the great food culture that's out there in Ireland. So whether you're in the food business, whether you have an interest, whether you just like talking, blogging, taking pictures of food, whatever it may be, you're more than welcome to join us here in Limerick. Each event will be marketed online. It'll be open to event price in terms of tickets. And uh, just, as I said, follow, follow us online or keep an eye on the hashtag BOI Workbench or BOI Food Series for up-and-coming events, mainly on Twitter.
Fantastic. Great to talk to you about it tonight and best of luck with the, the next few of them. Thanks a million, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. So far on the show tonight, we've heard all about Italian wines, thanks to Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. And just before the break, John Doyle was telling me about the Bank of Ireland food series, which included a talk by Artie Clifford from Blossnairn a few weeks ago. And coming up later this month, it's going to be all about beers, craft beers, that is. And then in May, it's going to be about restaurants. So I will keep you posted with all the details as I receive them. If you're just tuning in and you want to hear the start of the programme, you can check out the show when it goes up on the podcast later in the week and you'll find it on SharonNoonan.com or subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the podcast app. Now the next and final interview this evening is with a lovely American man called Travis Gleason. I came upon Travis a couple of times last year judging for various different awards so whenever I heard that he had a book out sure I had to get him to call to me here in Newcastle West to have a cup of coffee and to find out a bit about it. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Travis, you're very welcome to Newcastle West. Well, thank you very much for having me, Sharon. Thanks for stopping off on your way to the lovely Drumoland. I'm very fortunate to get to, to spend the night up there tonight. Well, it's great to have this cup of coffee with you and to have a chat about your book, Chef Interrupted. I think you have a great story that the listeners are going to be very interested in. Like myself, you're a bit of a blow-in. You're not from Ireland originally. No, not at all. My, my, my family comes from Fermanagh in the north, but um, that was 1690, I think, when they left. So... Um, I'm definitely a blow-in, or as they say down in West Kerry, I came in the mail road. It sounds like you did a lot of research into it. My auntie did. Uh, actually, I, I'd always clung to our Irishness. I grew up in a very, um, well, let's say not Irish-American community in America, in Michigan. And so I always clung to it. And when she was doing the research, it was she kept going back and back and back because there's the family lore that we were of Irish descent. It wasn't. She was about to make someone up, actually, <laughs> just to take care of me. But uh, no, she found it uh, from Lisbalaw, just outside of Enniskillen there. So that's that's where we um, we originated. But you've ended up in Dingle. That's where you put down roots now. Yeah. In in the book, Chef Interrupted, I call it. I refer to it only as the town in West Kerry because, um, well, I do want to be able to live there full time. <laughs> well. I have to ask you something now about the book because the book came out in America in 2015. It's out in Ireland now, it's called Chef Interrupted. And somebody told me the other day that you have changed some of the the information in the Irish version because you don't want to offend anybody. Well, I don't think that I, I offended anyone, uh, I hope. Uh, and certainly uh, everyone who's, who, whose character or caricature almost is in the book um, comes off better than they actually were, particularly myself. Um, but uh, no, I, I made sure that it, it was respectful, uh, or I tried to in the in the Irish version. Not that it wasn't in the American version, but certainly you've got to um, you've got to respect the face. Sure, you can wind people up a bit, but you have to respect that you know you're, you're still going to go down to the pub and see the same folks. And everyone was allowed to to make up their uh, their own pseudonym uh, that's, that's sort of represented. Very cool. Well. Yeah, Very sort of cool. I'm sure that was a great night in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> what night in Dingle in the pub isn't a great <laughs> night? Too true. 
So tell me then about the book. It's a kind of a mix about your story and recipes because you're a professionally trained chef. Uh, I am by training and a food scientist by education, but um, have had to stop doing that because of my MS. And so the book, if a memoir can take place in a specific place, um, it would be this um, this winter of 2005, six, uh, in a 180-year-old stone cottage on the mountain pass road, as I call it. Um, and I had about 18 different house guests come and visit. And w- after we got back to Seattle, those friends and family who visited, we had a, had a great time chatting and talking and laughing about what happened. But but when they would be alone together, there would be this, this sort of hushed, reverent talk about it. And, and someone said, you know, you should really write that down because there, some special things happened there. So one thing led to another, and, and, it, and it eventually morphed into this book, Chef Interrupted. You were 35 when they eventually realized it was MS that you, you had because you were, you were struggling with a few health issues, but they couldn't put their finger on exactly what was wrong. Well, you know, I'm not going to blame any doctors, but certainly there were a few things misdiagnosed. There were many things that were sort of ignored by, by me because with multiple sclerosis, it's a, it's a disease that for about 80% of the people who have it, it begins with relapsing and remitting. MS, which means that symptoms will come and then they'll back off after a few weeks and uh, you may lose some things, but it reverts to a baseline of sorts. And I sort of got used to that progressing baseline, and, uh, but it was in 2001, um, I became paralyzed on my left side and thought I was having a stroke. So that's when the diagnosis process began. And I heard you in a different interview, you said no, this is my first radio interview with you about the book. <laughs> You're very kind. You're very kind. But I heard a great interview that you did with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry mm. last year. And Joe is ex-West Limerick 102, so oh, we're allowed to, to mention him. And you, in that interview, you said, what does every normal person do when they think they're having a stroke? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if the normal people did, but I certainly went to see my massage therapist. <laughs> Again, it was just, when you're, when you're young and healthy... Um, you always think that it's it's not as bad uh, as it, it might be. So I thought maybe I, I had a pinched nerve as this this paralysis started. Uh, so I went to see my massage therapist, and and she could tell that there was something wrong from the ghetto. And so she said, "I will make this. I will do this massage, but I'm going to make you an appointment with your doctor. What's his his number?" And I thought, "Oh, sure, I'll see the doctor in a few days because he was a sort of a sought after sports therapist, sports uh, medicine doctor." Uh, and I literally went from the massage table directly to his office for an appointment, which should have started the alarm bells, but not quite. But I could see the look of concern on his face right away. And so from there, went right to an MRI chamber. And then the next morning, well, that night got the unofficial diagnosis, but the next morning. So I often say that I was diagnosed overnight in 15 years. Because that's okay. about how long I had symptoms before. Uh, and at that stage of your career, you had a very demanding job for a food service equipment company, and you were yeah, traveling a it lot. Was, it was a lot. I was I was flying almost a quarter of a million miles every year. So my my Mondays typically started at at quarter past three in the morning. I would leave my house and go to the airport, catch the first flight to Phoenix, Arizona, from Seattle, and then begin the week. And just about every night, I was in a different city. You know, I would. If I had a euro for every club sandwich and 
bowl of chips that I could get before the the restaurant uh, or the hotel's restaurant closed, um, I'd be a rich man. But uh, there was a lot of travel involved, um, and I enjoyed my job. I loved what I did. Uh, I was and I felt like I was good at it, respected for it. So when I had to stop that because of of my my MS, uh, that that really you know changed who I perceived myself to be. Your career has been very different. You've done lots of different things in it. Like you were in the Coast Guard at some stage as well. I was, and but not as a cook. Uh, I was a navigator on ships in the Coast Guard for nearly seven years. Um, but always, from the time I was young, uh, like I said, I, I say I grew up in a, in a white bread time in a homogenous place in America, and um, and my family's budget didn't really afford much travel. So it was f- through food experiences that I, I tended to travel. Um, so... Yeah, after after the Coast Guard, I decided that food was my my chosen career. So I went to culinary school, and I was starting relatively late. I guess I was in my mid twenties by this point, and so I, I I felt the pressure to do a lot of different things. Uh, so I would, um, uh, you know, I'd do some writing, I would do some consulting, I would do some uh, three or four different jobs at, at the same time, just to sort of catch up. Um, and then I, you know, landed some amazing jobs uh, during the Clinton administration in America. I was an ambassador for the, U, uh, the U.S. Agency for the International Development, and uh, went to, and worked with farmers who owned bakeries in Ukraine. Um, and through the World Bank, got some funding for them to start a granary, etc. So I, I had wonderful experiences. Uh, and uh, as I say in the book, I, I felt like I was just about to enter those really rarefied strata. In, in the food business uh, when it all came tumbling down. I get a sense that you were a very high achiever, that everything you do, you really embrace it and you have to be the best you can be at doing it. <sighs> I no. hope not. I'd like to hope that I, that I, I'd like to hope, I'm not saying that I wasn't, but I, I, mean, I consider myself some of the, something of a recovering egotist now because I look back at that person and I'm not so sure that he would have been that much fun to hang around with. But... Um, I have to be honest with you, and I, sometimes I think that maybe what I've always done was uh, found things that didn't have very high expectations because it was easy to exceed those expectations, perhaps. I think you're being very hard on yourself. Well, if I'm not hard on myself, boy, let me tell you, down in West Carey, they'll be hard on me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't comment on that. So what do you do? You know, you're you're busy down there. You're involved. Very oh, sure, much I do as little food, as possible. But you're very much involved in the food scene. Like you're a judge at the Blossom Erin Awards. You do dingle yeah. dinners. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So um, we've done quite a quite a few things since being in here. We we didn't want to just come and live the the expat life uh, in, in Kerry. We wanted to to tuck in and be part of the community. So we got involved in, in the food festival uh, in in Dingle, which is uh, always the first weekend in October, which is uh, just massive fun and it's a it's a very small committee i mean not even a dozen people that put that that festival on um and artie clifford from uh, bloss and heron he uh, uh he asked me to at one point to be um uh, an ambassador for bloss and so i've done some judging i've been involved since uh, the beginning with the irish quality food awards uh, as a judge and a, and a panel director there um we we we, we ran a culinary pentathlon for um for students uh during the last few um food festivals we had to stop that because of the 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 timing of the food festival and the beginning of schools this this last couple of years doesn't work but we intend to start that back up Um, my wife is very involved 
in her community, which is the uh, the autism community. Uh, and in fact, it was it was my passion that brought us to Ireland this, uh, to, to 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 live this dream in Ireland while we could. But because of MS and immigration, they didn't want me to be able to stay. So it's Karen's passion of working with uh, with people with autism spectrum disorder, which has allowed us to stay. Which uh, I, I'm I've got to be the most fortunate man on the planet. And you're not alone down there. You have, is it one or two dogs you have? I see we, you talking we, about your dogs yes, a lot. <laughs> we have the two Wheaton Terriers, both from a tie in County Kildare. Um, Sadie I got that winter that uh, the chef interrupted the book is about. And the, the last day that we were, or the second last day we were here, I, um, uh, and I recount the story there, I promised her that I would bring her home to Ireland. And so... Um, so we've done that, and then the next Christmas after we arrived, uh, Karen decided it was time to get another another dog, and we got um, we got another Wheaton Terrier, uh, who is I suppose like children, um, wonderfully nothing like her sister at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, ideal. So tell me then, did Sadie spend time in the States as well? Was she, she did. Here she, and no, then no, she went she, back to the so States. So it was um, it was very easy to bring her her to America. So I got her. She was um, maybe six months old, I suppose, not even that, when we moved back to Seattle. Um, and it was, I think it was 100 quid to take her from, from Shannon to Boston and another 100 from Boston to um, Seattle. But when we came back here, even though she was an Irish dog, had the passport, the rabies tighter, etc., I think it was about 2200 to bring her back here. No way. And so... Um, yeah, so she's. Um, and did she have to spend about six months in quarantine? No, she didn't then? because she was an Irish dog. Okay. Yeah, she was. She was. She uh, she had her passport, had all of her stamps, and so that was. So we actually we landed. Uh, agriculture picked her up on the pl- from the plane. We didn't even see her. We went to the vet, and an hour later we were able to collect her and okay. take her home to carry. Not so bad. Not now. so bad at all. Not so bad. Now the dingle dinners. Have you some of those coming up that people can enjoy? So we we typically run that. Um, the uh, it's a kind of a, a it started as a supper club and now it's kind of a bit of a pop up. Uh, we do that in the winter uh, at one of the the, uh, the bed and breakfast the inns that that that's closed for the winter. So we take over their kitchen and it's always good crack uh, to get together and and there's a lot of people from the food business, uh, the restaurant and catering side that just come and let their hair down and, and things like that. So those those end ended last month actually. So, um, but. Uh, a little hint, and this is the first one that you'll get to hear a little bit about it. So we will have a cookery book coming out in September uh, called Dinners from Dingle oh, as well. Wow, so okay. um, my publisher doesn't want me to talk too much about that, but there's a little tease for you. Thanks Ex- very much. And it's an exclusive. An exclusive to the best possible taste. <laughs> I like it. I like it. The cuisine in Ireland then compared to back in Seattle, is there any comparison? Well, certainly I'd have to say that the quality of the ingredients that are used here as bog standard are significantly higher than you would get outside of the top class restaurants in America. There's a big farm to fork movement there, etc. But they don't call it that down in Dingle. It's just, you know, cheap and cheerful because you are buying from the local veg man who's growing it uh, down below the hill in in Castle Gregory. Uh, And we don't call it free range hormone free GMO organic beef here we just call it you know Tommy Bricks beef <laughs> it's and I read a story did I about whenever you were first in Ireland and you were going in and out to the butchers and then you were gone for a few years and you went back into the butchers and he said where have you been that's that's true yeah so I I went home to Seattle 
after that winter and met my, my, my now wife uh, that summer. We were eventually married and we came back here for our honeymoon in the winter of 2009 and 10 over that Christmas, which you might remember was absolutely miserable, cold, snowy, icy. Um, but yeah, we walked into to the butcher shop and um, your man just, he's, well, Jesus, where have you been? And, and Karen looked at me like, uh, how, how, how do these people know you? It was five years ago. But uh, it's, it is a small town. Um, it punches well above its weight class. But uh, it, it's, it's a real town. As I, say, as I say, Dingle is not a chocolate box town. It's a real place where real people do real things. There's a, it's a farming and fishing village with a tourist problem. Can, can you see yourself living in any other part of Ireland? Um, maybe. Uh, never say never. Uh, it feels like home there. Uh, though, um, because we're here uh, on a visa for, for Karen's work, Karen's job, um, and a lot of the, the work that she does is, is required by the HSE but not funded for these organizations, so they have a hard time finding the funds for her. So we, we don't want to leave Carrie, but um, circumstances may have it. And um, uh, sure, when, one, when you open a door and go through it, I don't find that that's the end. All I find is you go through that door and there's a corridor full of doors. So who knows what tomorrow, next year, next month will bring. But I can tell you this, that when we were back last year in Seattle, I said to Karen, I'm just, it, was a, it was a Chamber of Commerce day, just stunning. So I picked that day to ask. I said, so Seattle or Dingle? And she said, you know, I do miss our friends, but most of the buggers come and visit us anyway. Um, she said, I can't, I can't imagine, imagine living anywhere but Dingle right now. So, you, you, I mean, you're living with MS and you're living with the, the prospect of having to go back to the States, whether you want to or not, but you're also living, I think, with a great attitude towards it all and you don't let those things bring you down. And that is something that the Irish have given us. It, we, when we got here, um, just the level of the oil in the tank was something that we worried about all the time. We, we, we were very, in quotes, American about everything. It was Everything was a potential crisis. And five years on, oh, sure, it'll be grand. It's just, um, why, um, why borrow trouble? Uh, that just, it's just part of, of what Ireland has given to us. Um, and, and we love that. We, we just came up across uh, a couple of potential major stumbling blocks a couple of weeks ago. And we both looked at each other and said, oh, sure, it'll be right on the night. Um, we just, you, there's, there's something about uh, the Irish ability to cope with difficulties uh, that we have been fortunate enough to, to take on, on board. But sure, we've all got something and there's none of us getting out of here alive. So we're living the dream while we can because I don't know you know, everyone could step off the curb, as they say in the book, and get hit by a bus. But living with a chronic illness, living with MS, I've been hit by the bus before. And I know that the rest of my life, I'm walking down the bus route with my back to traffic, and I'm going to hit again. Fantastic. Well, listen, I'm very excited to read the book. Thanks so much for calling to us here in Newcastle West to talk about it. And I hope now you'll do a book sign in, in the local bookshop at some stage. We will get that organized. There's not a doubt. Fantastic. Thanks, Travis. All right. Thanks, Mill. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter.
Great to talk to Travis and we must hold him to that promise that he'll come to Newcastle West and do a book signing at some stage later in the year. And that brings us to the end of tonight's programme. Before I finish up, I want to tell you that this Saturday, the April 15th, there's a potluck buffy style dinner with a group of refugees to Limerick being hosted by Limerick author Roisin Meany. It's taking place in Shea Fab on Arthur's Quay in Limerick City. And Roisin has asked me to let you all know that everyone is welcome to turn up with or without a dish to share. Children are very welcome as it is family friendly and there is no charge. There will be storytelling and music and Roisin says she really hopes that there will be huge support for the event which is aimed at showing our newest residents what a friendly and welcoming place Limerick is. If you check out RoisinMeany.com, that's Roisin's website, if you want to get in touch with her for more information. And what a lovely idea and well done Roisin for spearheading that. Thanks for tuning in tonight and to my guests, Ron Forrestal, John Doyle and Travis Gleeson. Until next week, enjoy the Easter eggs and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit